Well, last month, U.S. debt was downgraded for the second time in U.S. history. This didn't get nearly as much attention as the first time this happened in 2011. But given how quickly U.S. debt is rising today, and that also includes interest expense on this massive amount of debt, it is very likely that we are going to see more downgrades ahead. We're going to get into the unsustainable nature of this current situation, both on the debt and the energy front in today's Big Picture podcast. As always, speaking with us today is Jim Paplava, president of Financial Sense Wealth Management. So Jim, you've crunched a lot of numbers for today's show. Let's go through some of the disturbing facts facing us and the concerns that you have currently. Well, you know, Chris, I've got my laptop tuned to the national debt clock. And just as we began this show, we went from $32 trillion, $910 billion, we're about ready to cross $911 billion. That's how fast the debt's growing. So in the last two months alone, we've added $1 trillion of new debt just in two months. So now we are, by next week, we will cross $33 trillion. And by the end of the year, we're going to be at $34 trillion. And the way things are going next year, with the economy slowing down, Tax revenues are down over 20%. They're falling fast. And then a lot more of our short-term debt rolling over, it'll be going from one-tenth of a percent to over five and five and a half percent. So it's very possible by next year, Chris, we're going to be well over a trillion dollars. Just interest expense alone, and put that in perspective, that's almost as much as we spend on Medicare in Social Security. So that's how rapidly this is growing. And to put this into perspective, the government's budget is a little over $6.5 trillion. The problem is our tax revenues are less than $4.5 trillion. So the deficit for 2023 is likely to come in about $2.2 trillion. And they're estimating next year it's going to be over $3 trillion. So, Chris, we could end up next year at close to $37 to $38 trillion. And just imagine when all that debt rolls over and you're paying 5 5.5%. And that's why the theme of today's show, it's unsustainable. And it's, it's going to change here, in my estimation, in the next six months. Because it's, it's now all math. This isn't uh, a probability. This isn't a prediction. This is just math at this point. You cannot take in uh, tax revenues that are going to be 50% less than what you're spending. That is just simply not sustainable. And what makes this really remarkable, and I'm surprised that we're not seeing a lot more economists talk about this, Normally, you see this kind of deficit when you have high unemployment and you're in a recession. What makes this so unusual is we've got an unemployment rate. We're at full employment. We're less than 4% unemployment. And we've got an economy that's still growing, and yet we've got a deficit that's almost 8% of GDP. We have never seen anything like this before. And even a few voices in the government media, at the uh, New York Times, in the Financial Post, have been commenting that the only time that we have spent or seen deficits this large have been three crisis situations. One was World War II, 
The second one was the great financial crisis. And the third was the COVID pandemic and lockdowns. I mean, look at it this way. We were at $32.7 trillion in debt in 2019. And by next week, we're going to be at $33 trillion. So we have amassed $10 trillion of new debt in just three years. And it'll be more, well, actually, we'll be at $34 trillion by the end of the year. So we will have amassed $11 trillion in three years. That's how rapidly this thing is getting and why, and, and the implications for this, for the Treasury. And that's why I'm going to talk about the Fed is going to lose this inflation battle because they will have a choice, either bring inflation down, which is going to be hard to do when the Biden's policies are highly inflationary, or defend the banking system and the Treasury. And my bet is they will defend the banking system and the Treasury. Because look at it this way, at five and a half, I'm looking at my T-bill screen right now, we've got three-month treasuries at 5.45. We've got a one-year treasury note at 5.4. Our favorite is the two-year note. It's almost 5%. And you've got the 10-year yield at four and a quarter, and the 30-year bond is 4.34. Now, to put this into perspective, you have to understand over the last 10 years, why you and I and corporations were refinancing, locking in to 30-year mortgages at less than 3%, the government was doing just the opposite. They were issuing short-term treasury bills at 10 basis points. In fact, during 2020, there was a period of time you actually paid the government money on treasuries. So that kept the deficits down while we were doubling our national debt. But now all that short-term debt is rolling over. And right now we've paid net about 670, almost 675 billion in interest alone. And by next year, it's going to be over a trillion. To put that in perspective, think of it this way. We spend 1.3 trillion on Social Security, 1.6 trillion on Medicare, 800 billion on defense. So if you add interest, Social Security, Medicare, and defense, it's almost going to be 80% of government spending, leaving only 20% left for everything else. And that interest expense is going to grow. So that's why we feel you're going to start seeing what we saw during World War II and after World War II, where you're going to see the Fed come in with financial repression and start to basically do yield curve control like the Bank of Japan is. So that's why we are going to be shifting some of our maturities here. I'll talk about that when we talk about how you survive this going forward. But all the short-term debt rolling over, it's unsustainable. It's basically math now. And as I mentioned, normally you do not see this with low unemployment and growing economy, but we're seeing 8% deficits and here's the irony of this. The higher rates will lead to higher GDP growth, which will lead to higher interest rates, which will lead to higher inflation. We haven't seen this before. And what I'm getting at, uh, we can take a look at corporations. Corporations have refinanced their debt. It's one of the reasons profits have been so high is when they could refinance that debt in the 3% range, they did so. On the other hand, 
They've locked in low interest rates on all their debt. And then on their cash balances now, because corporations keep billions and billions of dollars in cash. I mean, Apple has close to $200 billion. You're not going to keep that in a bank. They keep it in treasuries. So they're playing both sides. They've locked in low interest rates on their debt, and they're getting high interest rates on their cash balances. Same thing is happening with consumers, and a lot of boomers who were getting nothing on cash now are getting over 5% money market funds. So what does that mean? Those higher interest rates are providing more income to retirees, to pensions and things like that, which is helping to sustain spending, which keeps GDP growing, which also keeps inflation growing, which also keeps the Fed raising interest rates. And so if you listen to Powell at Jackson Hole, he made two comments. I'm going to save the best one to the end. But he, he basically said, hey, we may not be done yet. So it's, it, I think there's like a 50, 60% chance they'll raise interest rates another quarter of a point. And especially now that we've got oil prices approaching $90. Remember, folks, remember in the summer when we got down below 70, I said, hold your hats, get into energy because by fall, we'll be back at $90 oil, and we're only $2 away from that. And Chris, we're only about $12 away from my $100 oil prediction, which is coming. So Jim, clearly this is unsustainable, and a lot of people are seeing the handwriting on the wall. I mean, not just the major credit rating agencies like we've discussed, which have now downgraded U.S. debt, but also even foreign One of China's credit rating agencies has also downgraded U.S. debt. It's probably safe to assume that they will be doing more of those in the future. But that being said, there's even major media outlets that are drawing attention to this issue as well, discussing the need for yield curve control. Can you tell us about how this would be an attempted fix or solution, uh, perhaps, to this problem? Well, they would just go in, start buying the long end of the curve on the bond market to keep the 10-year and the 30-year down. And then eventually, I think they're going to have to cut interest rates in some form or another. And what I suspect is going to trigger this, Chris, is the Treasury has to raise $2 trillion, although that figure keeps going up because the deficit keeps going up uh, faster than they, they anticipate. The Treasury will come to the market with a Treasury auction, And basically, what will happen, it'll fail. There won't be buyers, and that's when the Fed's going to have to step in. And already the Fed is talking about bypassing the primary government bond dealers and just basically buying that debt outright. They're going to have to because there's just not enough buyers, and there's a dollar shortage in trading right now. And it's one of the reasons you're seeing an accelerating movement by the BRIC countries to move away from the dollar and not get caught in a bind where there's a shortage of dollars. So if you think of what's happening right now with oil prices, we're up at almost $90 a barrel. You think that's bad here? It's even worse overseas when your currency is going down against the dollar because the dollar has been rallying with higher interest rates, as Dan was talking about earlier in the program. So if you're a foreign country... Your currency is going down against the dollar at the same time oil prices are going up. You're paying even more for that oil. And so that's why they, they're moving away from the dollar. They're moving like China trading in oil with Saudi Arabia and yuan 
They're doing that with Brazil. So a lot of the BRIC countries are moving out of the dollars. And the implications for debt financing is normally with trade deficits, and we are running a trillion-dollar trade deficit this year. It's not just the budget deficit. It's twin deficits. And if foreign countries have excess dollars, typically they recycle those back into our treasury market. They're not doing that. And so that was one of the reasons the bond market got slaughtered last year is foreigners were dumping treasuries to get dollars to pay for things. So that's why they're moving away from that. And that means less buyers of our treasury debt. And that's why they're talking about using legislation requiring banks to hold more treasuries. In other words, they're going to force the banking system to buy treasuries. That's dangerous because right now, Banks are sitting on hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of losses on their bond portfolio when they were buying them in the last decade. Well, check this out. We got a program. Let's say I bought a bond for 100 bucks. Because it was a lower interest rate paying bond, it's now 90 cents or 80 cents on the dollar. Well, that looks bad on my balance sheet. The Fed has got a swap program. I give the bond to the Fed that's worth 80 cents, and the Fed gives me back a dollar. So basically, I'm unloading my bond losses to the Federal Reserve. The other thing that's happened is the Fed used to earn excess interest on their Treasury holdings and remit that to the Treasury, which helped reduce the deficit. I think the last year it was positive, it was 2021, and it was like $120 billion they remitted to the Treasury. Right now, Federal Reserve Bank's I have are sitting on over $110 billion in losses. So they're not remitting any money to the Treasury. So this is why this is going to be a situation where you're going to have to have yield curve control. They're going to have to bring down interest rates by selective buying. And then you're also going to see Fed monetization of debt. Because if it comes down to it, he can talk about inflation all he wants. But if there's a choice between inflation or protecting the banking system and the Treasury, the Fed is going to go with the banking system and the Treasury. And we saw that in March when we had those banks go under. The Fed grew its balance sheet by over $400 billion in just two weeks. So expect more of that. You know, as we're talking about all this spending, and uh, again, 50% increase in U.S. debt since 2019. That's astounding. So this is an unsustainable path and trajectory that we're on. This is something that even the BRICS nations are aware of and discussing in terms of diversification away from the U.S. dollar, given the fact that, as you've pointed out, I mean, very likely the only way out of this is to implement some form of yield curve control along with running higher than average inflation to erode the value of that outstanding debt. This is all part of the broader macro geopolitical conversation, of course. But this ties into, again, when we think about the amount of spending, why the economy has been able to stay afloat in the face of one of the fastest and most aggressive rate hiking cycles that we've seen on record by the Federal Reserve. Well, if you take a look at the economy is still growing, corporate profits are still growing. And as I alluded to earlier, corporations and individuals refinance their debt, and especially coming out of the financial crisis where they got stuck with these bogus-type mortgages that reset after a couple of years, when they got down to low interest rates at 3%, people were smart. They locked in 30-year mortgages. 
corporations refinance their debt, 10 and 20 year bonds at low interest rates. So when the Fed raised interest rates, they were less susceptible to those rate hikes. That meant corporate profits remained high because they didn't have to roll over debt at higher rates. And as I talked about earlier, on top of that, individuals and corporations are now getting 5% on money market funds in T-bills. So they're playing both sides. They locked in low interest rates on their debt, and they're receiving high interest rates on their cash. And that's helping out the economy. The other thing that's unusual right now, especially coming out of the pandemic, there is a shortage of low-wage workers. Uh, you see it everywhere, Chris, around the shopping malls and strip malls that are around, restaurants hiring, stores hiring. There was an Amazon Fresh store that was due to open up in the city I live in. They couldn't open it up. They couldn't find the workers. Uh, fast, uh, you know, go across the border to Arizona, Taiwan Semiconductor based on risk of China's invasion, they're building a second plant in Phoenix, Arizona that was supposed to open up in 2024. They can't open it up. They don't have enough workers. They're going to have to bring workers over from Taiwan because they don't have the skilled workers in the semiconductor industry. So that's one reason why the unemployment rate has been low uh, despite all these Fed rate hikes. And there's still a little bit of cash left over from the COVID payouts or the stimulus checks that the government handed out. And for the election next year, Biden is talking about increasing spending by half a trillion dollars and sending people checks before the election. You know, Newsom did it in California and he'll probably do it again because uh, he is one of the individuals they're saying that could be a candidate uh, for the Democratic Party, should Biden be forced to step down because of the scandals or because of health reasons? So you're seeing money that the government is dishing out, money basically that we don't have. So all these policies added up together are highly inflationary. And remember also, one thing that helped out was the suspension of student loan payments for part of the year. Now, the Biden administration is trying to go around the Supreme Court and get around that and kind of issue another suspension. But whether that plays out, we don't know at this point. But anyway, they're talking about spending more money and uh, about another half a trillion dollars. At this point, it's becoming exponential. Yeah, it just makes you wonder where the U.S. economy would be if we didn't see this level of spending that we see currently. Because as you pointed out earlier, I mean, we're seeing the amount of spending typically that occurs within a recession. One subject that we've talked about a number of different times on the show is this concept of fiscal dominance. Can you explain what fiscal dominance is and where this fits into the conversation about unsustainable U.S. debt? Yeah, fiscal dominance is really, fiscal spending is really now uh, driving the U.S. economy. It's, it's not as much monetary policy. As we talked about, monetary policy is having less of an effect for the Factors we just talked about, people refinance, uh, the higher interest rates are putting cash into corporations, putting cash into individual pockets. And so this means that that fiscal spending and dominance is going to be have to be supported. The Fed will take a back step to government spending because everything going forward now is going to be driven by fiscal spending and it's not going to stop. I mean, no politician is going to run and say, we're going to cut your Social Security check, we're going to cut defense, we're going to cut your Medicare, although they're making you pay for more of it. And this is why 
Chris, the Fed is going to lose the inflation battle. And the other thing that we have is the regulations that we're putting into place in the war by the Biden administration on fossil fuels. It's going to drive up the cost of energy, the cost of gasoline and oil, the cost of utilities. I mean, this week, the Biden administration just canceled seven major oil and gas leases in Alaska, which means less oil production, means less jobs, means less revenue to the state of Alaska. So the energy policy and the green transition, Chris, is in complete disarray. And it's failing to produce the planned outcomes because what we're seeing is higher energy cost, higher inflation. So, you know, the one thing I would say, if you're an investor, prepare for a decade of higher inflation. And if you're not prepared, you could become impoverished, especially if you're on fixed income or you have no source of an increasing income to pay those bills. You're seeing it in your food. You're seeing it in your gasoline. You're seeing it in your utilities. You're seeing it in insurance premiums. You're seeing it in medical costs. Look around on the basic necessities. They're all going up at close to double digits. How are you going to pay those bills 10 years from now? You better have a plan. So in some fiscal dominance is a situation in which government's fiscal policy decisions such as spending and taxing take precedence over or dictate the objectives of monetary policy. When fiscal dominance is in place, central bank actions, particularly those related to controlling inflation or stabilizing the financial system, can be constrained or overshadowed by the government's fiscal needs. And these actions having consequences in terms of inflation, loss of central bank credibility, and financial instability. So uh, these are some of the things to keep in mind when we're in a fiscal dominance-like environment as we are currently and are likely to increasingly move into. So let's talk about another area that you see as being unsustainable, and that has to do with the aggressive push towards renewable energy and the energy transition that we see underway right now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at your typical energy transitions from steam to coal, from coal to oil, they typically take 30 to 50 years. I mean, we didn't go to cars, freeways, gas stations. We didn't do that in 10 years. In what our elites are doing, they're saying, we're going to do this in 10 years. And there is no logical thought to anything that they're doing. Energy transitions take raw materials. You have to have raw materials to make a solar panel, raw materials to make a windmill, raw materials to make batteries for EVs. And everywhere you look, we have a shortage of lithium, copper, cobalt, nickel, silver, uranium. And so mandating that we're going to go to unstable sources of electricity like windmills and solar, which don't work very well on many parts of the world, or EVs, but at the same time, you're blocking mining to provide the raw materials to build grain. We've shut down mines in Arizona, mines in Minnesota, mines in Maine, and we just took off a large swath of all of our uranium in Utah. That was done two weeks ago by President Biden. So imagine this. In the last year, we bought nearly 500 tons of uranium from the Russians. Now, how does this work for the U.S. military, which is supposedly the most powerful military in the world? Our computer chips for our sophisticated missiles and weapons come from China, and now our uranium that powers our subs and aircraft carriers comes from Russia. 
two of our enemies we're relying on for parts to make our weapons or run our subs and aircraft carriers. What kind of position does that put the U.S. in? A very weakened position. And so this is basically what we're doing, Chris, is it, these banana green policies build absolutely nothing anytime near anybody. We have outsourced our energy production to China, Russia, and OPEC. At the same time that the Biden administration just took seven oil and gas leases out of Alaska, they're approving Chevron to go into Venezuela to develop Venezuela's oil reserves. But they can't do it here they have a hard time trying to get the lease. We've upped lease contracts up by 33%. We're tying it up. Uh, good luck trying to build a new mine. It'll probably take you 10 years. Good luck trying to build a nuclear power plant. That'll take you over 10 years. And the other thing is if you take a look at what this green transition takes, and we talk about copper, an EV uses six times the amount of copper than a gasoline engine. Copper inventories are falling off a cliff. Some of the largest copper mines in the world are going to lower grade ore, meaning that for every ton of ore they process, they get less copper. So they've high graded in the past when prices were low. Now we're dealing with lower ore grades. We're dealing with lower copper discoveries. I think there's a handful of copper discoveries, none of them major over the last decade. Then if you talk about silver mines, and here's something to keep, this is one of the reasons we are so bullish on silver. The gold to silver ratio is about 80. Usually when it gets that high, you see silver outperform, and I expect to see that here in the next year or two. But the largest producer of silver in the world is Mexico. Mexico's mines will be depleted in the next six years. China's mines will be depleted before the end of this decade. And it's not just the silver that we use in solar panels because the new solar panels require more silver. The windmills. And then think of all the electronics you have. You take a look at your laptop, your iPad, your iPhone, uh, Kindle. All these electronic devices that we use in this technological society we live in require silver as a conductor. And so we're going to see shortages of silver. And now let's move on to something that we should be doing, which we're not. The U.S. at one time had 104 nuclear power plants. We're down to 93. China is on track to build up to 150. And by the way, they are the fastest builder of coal-fired plants. So our cost, it costs $24 billion to build a nuclear plant in the U.S. in about 10 years. China can get it done in a couple of years for $2 billion. So if you look what China is doing, they're creating kind of an OPEC with key green materials. So China is going into countries, whether it's going into Saudi Arabia, we'll come in, we will build a nuclear power plant, we'll supply you with our friends, the Russians, the uranium. In exchange, we want to encumber your natural resources whether it's grains coming out of Brazil, whether it's oil coming out of Brazil or coming out of Saudi Arabia or the Middle East, China is encumbering natural resources. And what they're doing is they're coming in and in exchange for that, they're going to help build your economy. We're going to help you uh, build a nuclear power plant. We're going to help you with infrastructure. So instead of using weapons and threats, they're using money in building the economy 
and they're winning that battle with the U.S. So you're going to see more power outs. You're going to see escalating utility costs. You're seeing gasoline costs. Chris, we're already over $6 gasoline, and I predict we'll be back to $7 to $8 gasoline in, in California. So get ready because there is no logical thought in this energy transition. We're just issuing mandates and hoping, voila, everything will fall into place. It's not. Yeah, I want to go back to uh, what you mentioned earlier with Biden canceling the leases on drilling in Alaska. I just got back from Alaska last month, and it was pretty eye-opening to see just how vast amount of territory there is that is completely untouched and secluded uh, with very little you know, human footprint at all. Vast areas of Alaska, I'm sure, have never even been stepped on. And just some stats on Alaska real quick that I think are important to keep in mind when we're talking about, you know, shutting down leases or not using some of the resources up there. Alaska is by far the largest state in the U.S. It is larger than the next three largest states, Texas, California, and Montana combined. It is the seventh largest subnational division in the world and if it was an independent nation it would be the 18th largest country in the world almost the same size as iran and it is also the most secluded uh, population wise in the entire u.s and it has vast vast swaths of natural resources but also oil and gas as well so it's just amazing when you think about this uh, vast untouched resource and uh, the fact that you know it's not being utilized to its uh, fullest extent. I mean, again, this is larger than the three largest states in the contiguous U.S. combined. This is a vast area. It's not just one small little place that we have to necessarily worry about ruining by extracting those resources in an environmentally friendly way, of course. This is a giant piece of territory. So I just thought that was interesting, especially after just having been there. But let's move on to the final point, and that is the investment implications of everything that we've discussed today, Jim. Well, once again, going back to our theme, a return to higher inflation, debt monetization. We're big believers in gold and silver. In fact, you know, people forget about this, but from 2018 to 2022, the price of gold went from under $1,200 to over 2000 Silver went from 12 to over, got as high as 28 So anytime you see a big spike like that, you, you normally see a consolidation. But if you take a look at one of the reasons the metals have been weak is individual investors have dumped about 600 tons of gold, mainly by selling off GLD, and almost an equal amount of silver by selling off SLV. Well, why has gold stayed so strong? Well, while individual investors have been dumping gold, it's been the largest buying in history by central banks. Central banks bought 1,270 tons of gold last year. They're on track to buy about 1,400 tons of gold this year. Uh, central banks aren't buying silver, but the smart money, some of the smart hedge funds I know, are accumulating large positions in silver because we're watching the available silver on inventory on the COMEX. And so we like gold and silver, and you're probably going to think I'm crazy when I say this. We expect the price of gold to go up fivefold. Yes, folks, over 10000 an ounce. Over what time horizon, though? This decade. And we expect silver to go up tenfold. You could see $300 silver. And that may sound crazy, but you remember I, 
I go back to 2000 when I said uh, I, we were predicting back then that gold would take out its old highs and cross over a thousand. Uh, I I was grossly conservative because we not only took out the old highs, but we got to 2000, almost close to 2000 by the year 2011, and then silver in the spring of 2011 went and got up to almost $50 an ounce. But we see that, and a lot of it is going to be delivered this time by supply. There just isn't going to be enough gold and silver to meet those demands, and especially silver on the industrial side and uh, the, the green energy side, which is real key in electronics. So central banks and smart money are accumulating, and we're, we're along the ride with the central banks because you're going to see gold once again resume its role as a currency, especially within the BRIC countries that don't have the wide developed uh, financial markets where excess dollars from trade can be recycled. They just don't have it. China does not have a large enough financial market to absorb excess yuan that come in as a result of trades. And the other thing that we see too, and remember this summer, when we got down to below 70, I said, watch out, we're heading to 90. And on this Friday, we're just a couple bucks away from that. And I think by next year, by the end of this year, or the first part of next year, we could be at 100. And I also see 150 to $200 oil this decade. We're just not producing enough of it. And contrary to what you have heard, the IA is always revising their oil estimates higher. We are consuming more and more oil each year. Last year was a record. I think oil growth and demand went up by almost 3%. Well, Jim, aside from hard assets, what would be one of the other ways that you would say that investors can keep up with inflation? You know, I, I hearken back to what I've been preaching over the last decade, dividend aristocrats. Because, you know, think of this. You're retired to getting close to retirement. You're living off your income. How are you going to pay for higher gasoline prices, higher utility, higher food, higher medical, uh, all the things that you spend money on? And I've always said about 50% of the time, the market is just going sideways. 25%, it's going up like a rocket, or 25% is dropping like lead. The thing that I feel most comfortable with is knowing where my dividends are going to be this year or next year. And Chris, even in a year like this where the commodity prices have slowed down, I mean, I'm just looking at some of the oil stocks that we own. Uh, dividends up 18%, up 10%, up 23%. One of our oil stocks up 43%. I'm looking at drug stocks up 12%, up 10%. A consumer staple stock, dividends up 9%. A retailer up 22%. An agricultural stock up over 10%. So dividends are more predictable. I don't know where the S&P is going to be December 31st. God knows. There's so many macro and geopolitical factors that are coming into play. But I know where the stocks we own, I have a high degree of probability of where those dividends are going to be. And so even despite a difficult year like this year, those dividend increases are still coming in. So at least my clients are going to have income that's going to help them cover their retirement expenses, whether it's medical, whether it's food, whether it's living conditions, or just simply enjoying life and traveling. If you don't have anything like that in your portfolio, how are you going to cover that? The other thing that we're excited about is 
we're expecting this transition that the Fed's going to come in and they're going to have to start monetizing debt and yield curve control. So we're getting ready to extend our duration on bonds probably in the three to four year range. And, you know, Chris, we're looking at seven and seven and a half percent yields. I mean, that's almost 80 percent of the long term return of the market. You add that to dividend yields, four and a half, five percent, growing at 10 percent a year. We're going to be positioning ourselves for inflation and also, more importantly, with a more predictable stream of income. You know, if you're relying on income by selling off your mutual shares, you know, the old 4% rule that we've used in financial planning where you basically liquidate 4% of your portfolio each year and you live on it. I go, how's that going to work if we're in a downturn? At least now we're getting these yields from actual interest in dividends so we're not touching principal. And so in summary, we're in for a period of long inflation this decade. And I want to leave you with a quote from Powell at Jackson Hole this year. He said, at this point, we're navigating by the stars. That should tell you all you need to know. I just looked that up because I wasn't quite believing you that uh, Chairman Powell would have said something like that. But indeed, you are correct. At uh, Jackson Hole, he said, as is often the case, we are navigating by the stars under cloudy skies. I wonder if he uses astrology at all for setting monetary <laughs> policy. Or maybe a Ouija board. I don't know. So, Jim, wrapping up the way things are going right now, things are clearly unsustainable when we look at the trajectory of U.S. debt, the amount of spending that we're seeing, also the lack of tax revenues coming in, the quickly climbing interest expense on that debt, and also this forced transition towards renewable energy, which is not being thought through, as you discussed today, given the fact that we are not opening up the required number of mines, leases, and permits uh, to make this energy transition even doable. Uh, so we need to be mining much, much more than we are, uh, given just how much copper, silver, lithium, and all of these other resources are required for windmills, solar power, electric vehicles, and the like. So there's a number of things that are coming to a head here. But as always, there are ways in which you can invest around these, which is what we talked about today with the investment implications, all of which we are doing in the various portfolios that we manage here at Financial Sense Wealth Management with different weightings toward hard assets and dividend paying stocks, depending on your risk tolerance and your age. So if you'd like to contact us about our asset management services, you can reach us at 888 486 3939. Once again, that's 888-486-3939. We have a large team of financial advisors standing by that can assist you and answer any questions you have. And you can also contact us through our website by going to financialsense.com and hitting where it says contact us. In the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on the Financial Sense News Hour. Until you and I talk again, well, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. 
Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.